I'm walking in Gary, Indiana. The second time I've come to this exact spot of this small city, the place where Lyman Bostock was murdered. I'm back because this place was so significant in Lyman's life and ultimately in his death. I'm taking a walk block by block from a point of origin to an end point, or so I'd like to think. I'm making my way south, away from Lake Michigan, from the intersection of Fifth Avenue and Jackson Street, a spot where the lives of two men who'd never met before intersected more than 40 years ago. That was in 1978 when Lyman was a budding star for the California Angels and when he crossed paths with a man named Leonard Smith, who was jealous and violent. Smith lived six blocks down Jackson Street, so that's where I'm walking right now, one block at a time. From the intersection where Lyman died to the place farther down Jackson, where I'd ultimately meet the man who killed him. Both Lyman and Smith had lived in Gary. Smith virtually his entire life, with one notable period of exception. We'll, we'll get to that later. Lyman left here when he was just a boy, but he cared about the people here, his aunts, his uncles, his cousins, the family that called Gary home. And beyond them, he cared about his people, their plight and their struggle. Lyman's formative years happened far away from here, in Los Angeles, during the height of the civil rights movement in the 60s. And Lyman joined that fight himself in his own way, at a time when baseball wasn't on his mind. Equality and justice were. This is Bill Brooks, Lyman's friend and brother-in-law. He was willing to sacrifice something that he loved to fight for something that was more important that he believed in. I don't know at the time whether or not he even knew that he would have an opportunity to play professional baseball or not. There was a bigger mission here that put him in the position to uh, set a priority. In the more than 150-year history of Major League Baseball, only one player has ever been murdered during a season. This is the story of that player, of that murder, and the story of what happened to the man who murdered him. For Fox Sports Audio, I'm Tom Rinaldi, and this is Wesley, the story of the life, career, and death of Lyman Wesley Bostock. Wow, what a gorgeous swing this guy has. I have no idea who it was. He was never down. He put the work in. I really thought that he was going to be a great player. A 31-year-old man charged in Crown Point, Indiana for the weekend murder of baseball star Lyman Bostock. Mr. Smith did it and got away with murder. Why would you want to spend time playing this rich man's game when there's so many other important issues at stake for our race, for our people? The cause was more important than sport at the time. 
I have tears coming from my eyes right now as we speak, just thinking about it. Folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Episode two, bigger than baseball. Lyman Bostock came to San Fernando Valley State in 1968 on a baseball scholarship. But his freshman year, after a white football coach kicked a black player on the field during a game, Lyman and the Black Student Union at Valley State want to change. That November, Lyman was part of a student protest and takeover of the college's administration building. The day after, despite a promise of amnesty, he was arrested with dozens of others, and was one of a handful charged with multiple felonies, including kidnapping, assault with intent to commit bodily harm, and conspiracy. This is Reggie Williams, a college classmate of Lyman's. I remember the big three. It was uh, Archie Chapman, Eddie Dancer, and Lyman, the ones that had the big charges. You sit there and you realize how serious, this is serious. You know, kidnapping, uh, they trying to put these guys away forever. 17, 18 years old, you know, just sitting there going, taking it all in, you know, trying to figure out what in the hell is going on. Euveen Brooks was Lyman's girlfriend. It's just ridiculous. I think what they were tr trying to do was set an example, send a message. You know, you don't come here and do this kind of thing. The charges were, you know, didn't fit the crime. And so they, they were basically just sending a message. Considered to be a ringleader, Lyman received one of the highest bail amounts, which his mother Annie hosted, getting him out of jail. 
In December, he was in Van Nuys Municipal Court for his preliminary hearing. This is Adam Powell, the author of a biography on Lyman. Certainly, these individuals deemed to be the ringleaders were going to be dealt with very harshly and swiftly, and and examples made of them, then perhaps future uh, students would not consider an act like this. But at the hearing, Lyman had several people show up, vouching for his character and speaking up for him. A couple of teachers from Manual Arts High School actually went and spoke and said, look, these are not criminals. These are kids. Uh, They're caught up in in something here, uh, that it was more of kind of a, a spontaneous uprising. But certainly no lives were threatened. There were no guns. There were no firearms. Nobody was physically attacked. Free on bail, Lyman's case would begin its long journey through the courts. In fact, a year later, 24 defendants would still be facing more than a thousand different counts connected to the administration building takeover. Meanwhile, Lyman returned to a campus, like many others, dealing with upheaval and unrest. as a mass, and we're gonna ask people to come out of classes. They grabbed me through up against the wall, told me I was under arrest, I asked why, they did not tell me. I am a student, I am a student, I can be in any building I wish. The disorder on state campuses was a common talking point for the first term California governor at the time, who called for a crackdown on student protests. The governor's name was Ronald Reagan. When a group takes over the administration building and other buildings of a campus, when they interfere with the orderly processes of the administration, when they force the cancellation of classes and studies on the part of the majority who happens to disagree with them. The truth of the matter is this has to stop, and it has to stop like the day before yesterday. And it's going to be stopped, whatever it takes. I would like to propose that the issue is that on the campuses, you, who are adults, You who are entrusted with those young people and their guidance have a responsibility to make it plain to them from the very beginning that you yourselves do not tolerate the kind of conduct that has led to the burning of Wheeler Hall. The greater flashpoint at Valley State came in January 1969. Hundreds of students protested outside the administration building, making speeches and seeking greater diversity among the faculty, more representation on the college's board, and more access for students of color. Several student leaders made a push toward the building to get inside. Yuvine Brooks remembers the scene. A whole lot more people than was back in November. And um, there were speakers and I guess They called the police. Well, the police were brought in. Um, What we know now is that they were brought in from the back side of the administration building, so we couldn't see them. When a window was broken, the officers stormed out and into the crowd. And the police came out with force, swinging billy clubs, and we were just like all, all running to get away. 
we started to hear about injuries to um, some of the students, one of which was a really close friend of uh, Lyman's who got a billy club in his eye. It was like war, it was like a war zone. This is Dr. Jerome Walker, who was one of the student leaders at the protest, who was also arrested. Here he is speaking in the documentary, The Storm at Valley State. Never forget it. All of us are are shackled on this bus. And this one student, his name was Sheldon. One of the policemen took his baton straight down and jammed it in his eye. And this young man's eye, we thought he was losing it. And they wouldn't give him any medical treatment. None of us. And we're bleeding. And I could hear, you could hear these guys enjoying what they were doing. There was no question about what's your intent, why you're doing what you're doing. It was about... I want to inflict pain on your black ass. Many more of Lyman's classmates were arrested and booked, as he'd been just two months earlier. In the January melee, more than 400 Valley State students were rounded up, placed on buses, and taken away, including Uveen. We were just pulled out of the crowd and um, put on buses and booked, taken, you know, taken down and, and booked. I think the thing that made it less scary that day is, again, the solidarity. It's not like one person taken away. It was a mass demonstration, it was mass arrests. It was bigger than life. It was worth going through, through that struggle. I wasn't gonna go away. I mean, a lot of people's girlfriends got arrested that day and it needed to be done. It just really needed to be done. If Lyman had any involvement that day, there is no legal record of it. But amidst the chaos and tumult on campus, he didn't step on a baseball field at all. He'd already been pressured by those around him to give up the game, told by peers It was meaningless, especially compared to what they believed were the greater causes of the day. Again, the author, Adam Powell. He was listed as one of the incoming freshmen on the San Fernando Valley State baseball team. He was not involved. People were pressuring him not to play baseball. I think the crowd, his social circle at that time, were clearly young African-Americans that were disenchanted by baseball. And they're like, why do you want to be involved in a sport that, you know, you're essentially a slave to the master? And I just think he, he... made a a choice to kind of, in that period of his life, focus on, on the movement and the struggle. This was true, but only partially. Yuvine and Lyman were dating, and she knew. The game he'd grown up playing and loving still mattered to Lyman, a lot. I think he had a dream to fulfill. He knew he was gifted. He knew he had special talents, and um, this could be his second chance coming out to do that. 
But pursuing that dream wouldn't entirely be up to him. As Lyman was about to find out, his future in baseball was on the brink of ending before it even started. In the fall of 1969, Lyman Bostock's sophomore year in college, one of the most unlikely stories in baseball history was unfolding. The previously hapless New York Mets, a punchline of a team just a few years before, were trying to beat the heavily favored Baltimore Orioles to win the World Series. The thrill of the Mets' win could not have seemed farther away to Lyman. He'd come to San Fernando Valley State on a baseball scholarship, but after being arrested in a campus demonstration, he never stepped on the field freshman year. In fall workouts as a sophomore, his coach, Bob Heegard, noticed Lyman lacking motivation and discipline. So the coach met with him and delivered a hard message. Here's the author. Adam Powell. Well, he basically cut him. He said he was done. He was not applying himself even then. It was clear that he had his mind somewhere else. Coach Heger knew what he had on his roster. He wasn't boasting. With Lyman watching from the stands in street clothes, the Valley State Matadors went on to a great season, advancing all the way to the 1970 NCAA Division II College World Series. There, they beat Nichols State to become national champions. Back on campus a few weeks later, Lyman showed up at Coach Heegert's office and knocked on the door. Here's Adam Powell. He just said, I've made mistakes, and I'm sorry about that, and I want a second chance. And Coach Heegert, to his credit, said, well, that's what life's all about. I will give you a second chance, but I will tell you this. You've got a zero-tolerance policy. We need the best 25 players we can have. And you would have been one of those, but you quit on us. We didn't quit on you. And that was really the defining moment. By the time the 1971 season arrived, Lyman proved he was committed. He became a starter in the outfield, hitting 345. But as the Matadors prepared to defend their national title, Lyman's criminal record re-emerged. Two and a half years after his arrest at the campus protest, Lyman would finally be going to jail, receiving a reduced sentence due to an apparent plea deal. In May, at the end of the regular season, he reported to the L.A. County Jail to serve three weeks. Here's Yuveen. He probably felt a reckoning of sorts. I think he probably did a lot of reflecting on what he wanted to do, his mom really had some conversations with him, reminded him of why he was there in the first place. Looking forward, where do I go? What do I do? 
How can I make the most of my life? The day Lyman got out of L.A. County Jail, the person there to pick him up was his coach, Bob Hegert. Coach Hegert was awesome. He was like a kind of surrogate dad, in a sense. He took time with him, not just on the field, but in him personally, and gave guidance and helped prepare him for his, his next steps in the profession, in professional baseball which was really important and necessary because there was no one else to be able to do that. So he was really invested in him personally. Lyman was back on the field in time for the postseason West Regional, but the Matadors ultimately finished the 71 season, two wins shy of returning to the College World Series. That summer, Lyman continued working toward his degree while mentoring kids near his home in L.A. He was starting to blossom as a player. Here's Wilmer Aaron, a childhood friend. He really became a more pronounced ball player when he got bigger and stronger. See, he was ready. When he came out of Northridge, Lyman wasn't that big when he went into Northridge, but when he got to be 6'1", 175, 180, and start filling out, and he had that technique, it was, oh boy, he was really something to watch. In the 1972 season, the school officially changed its name from San Fernando Valley State College to Cal State University, Northridge. Lyman became a team leader as the Matadors reached the Division II College World Series again. His performance left him with choices come back to school for the 73 season, or leave if there was a major league team willing to draft him. Turned out, there was, in the 26th round. Adam Powell recounts that draft. Nobody really had high expectations that Lyman would get taken high, and certainly they weren't disappointed because he ends up getting selected 595th overall. He was the sixth pick of the 26th round in that draft. This was a quote Lyman gave to the Baltimore Sun years later about the baseball draft. It's read now by his brother-in-law, Vincent Brooks. They heard I had a bad attitude. They were wrong. I guess they weren't too high on me. They rely too much on what other people say. Scouts don't have enough time to see what guys really love to play. Now, Lyman had a decision. Should he pursue a pro career as a long shot late round pick or stay in college and try to improve his draft stock? Yuvine didn't think Lyman wanted to defer his dream any longer. He really wanted to be able to support his mom, and he probably felt he could get on the path to be able to do that sooner than later if he signed. Of course, he signed with the team with the least amount of <laughs> opportunity to do that, which we found later, but that's another story. It would be the first step in an uncertain climb Lyman was working toward his dream, but also moving closer to its ultimate cost.
on the next episode of Wesley. Lyman makes it to the majors only to discover his struggle was far from over. I'm not going to be humiliated like my father was. Times have changed. He had no choice. Now every player has the right to determine his destiny. I'm going to determine my own. That's next time on Wesley. Wesley is produced for Fox Sports Audio in conjunction with Blue Duck Media. It's reported, written, and hosted by me, Tom Rinaldi. Executive producers are Eric Shanks, Charlie Dixon, and me for Fox Sports. Gabe Goodwin and Scott Turkin for Blue Duck Media. Sound mixing and original scoring from Steve Porter and Porterhouse Media. Editing and sound design by Mike Goldstein. Audio field recording from Alan Chow. The terrific Jen Roman is our producer and production manager. Script consulting and research by the beautiful mind of David Sabino. Additional production and research from the quartermaster, Quincy Tucker. Production support from Jonathan Berger, Matt Engelberg, Michael Vader, and Ben Redmond. Special thanks to Euvine Whistler and her family, the Lyman Bostock family, the incomparable Willie Weinbaum, Major League Baseball, and ESPN.